2.99. Why are you judging my daughter's diving? I wasn't talking about her. I was finalizing this month's special at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. 2.99% interest for 10 years. Wow, 2.99. That? Visit PellaWI.com. The Wisconsin State Fair is here. Bringing you the sights and sounds live from the fair. Here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the program. We have, I always say this, because it's just between us, but the crowd that assembles outside the program for the Wagner Show, I, I've been doing this for 25 years, it is by far and away the best-looking crowd that we draw at the Wisconsin State Fair. So give yourselves rounds of applause. We appreciate that. Um, oh, we're standing three deep already. This is wonderful. I, I'm actually, as I was saying to Steve earlier, this is... I must have started doing this when I was like 10 years old because this is the 25th year that I have worked from the Wisconsin State Fair. I started in the summer of 1998, part-time. I was filling in for Charlie Sykes, and Charlie left to take a sabbatical a week before the Wisconsin State Fair. So I had a week in the studio, and then we were out at the State Fair, and we have been broadcasting continuously from the State Fair, with the exception of that one year when our management, none none of whom is, is still part of management, decided we don't need TMJ out at the State Fair, and I forget what they did out here, but we, we quickly realized that that was a mistake and we're out here again and and the really special thing is for people who come by and look at the booth this has for the first time in 20 well i i I can only speak for 25 years but we've completely renovated our booth so there's new carpeting there's there's an electric sign outside there's uh, new awnings and all this stuff and and the back is completely and totally different The, the carpeting well like i say i can only speak for 25 years but the carpeting had not been changed in 25 years and now it has been completely and totally redone because if that carpeting could talk, I know it would have a whole lot of stories to, to tell. One year, it was really, really hot, and this is back when John Green worked, and he did the show after mine. And John had come here, and he'd walked around the state fair in like a 100-degree heat or whatever. So I walk into the back room, and there's Jonathan Green it appears like he is unconscious, laying on this awful green carpet that we had. And I'm, I'm wondering, okay, do I... Do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation? Do I kick him? How do you kind of bring him back? But he he was just kind of resting, and he must have been extremely tired because otherwise there's no way you would have laid on this 25-year-old carpet. But we are completely refreshed. We're here for a couple more days, so if you're coming out to the State Fair, do what everybody's doing right now and stop by and say hello. I try to come out during the breaks and say hi because I really do uh, appreciate you listening to the show. As we have been talking about, I got back last evening. Yesterday, I got off a cruise ship in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, After a week-long trip, we started in Anchorage and then took a bus down to Seward, and we're on a river, uh, not river cruise, we were on a a big liner sea sea cruise um, for seven days through Alaska. It is absolutely beautiful. If you ever get a chance to do it, I encourage you to do it. The weather, kind of hit and miss. Some days, really, really sunny. And if you see me, I have a deep suntan, and that is, how do you go to Alaska and get like really bright red like this well it's because the last day at sea we were cruising and i was up by the pool and i was getting the sunshine um, we had some days that were raining but that's but did not stop everybody from having a lot of fun the weirdest thing 
and and I've never experienced this. I've never been on a like a sea cruise before. I've been on a couple river cruises, but you know they always talk about sea legs, which is how you know you you get on the boat and you feel the rocking of the boat and you get used to that. Well, okay, I had no problem doing that, but the reverse is true too. So once you get back on land, your body is used to like that rocking of the waves. So I I am all a tilt. I, I'm still trying to get my sea legs. I feel like I've been drinking, but I guarantee you I have not been because when I sit here, things kind of move back back and forth, they tell me that that you know, will pass after a day or two, so we'll end up surviving that. But it was a great trip. I do have, I have a confession to make, and this perhaps makes me a bad person. Um, the, the, the cruise ship that we were on was was very very good and one of the the things when we we first get into our stateroom the toiletries like the shampoo and the conditioner and stuff my wife says oh my gosh this is really expensive stuff this is much better than the shampoo we use at home so over the course of well the the week of the trip I, I felt kind of like the clampets on a cruise because we would take the shampoo and conditioner and stuff each day and we put it in our in our bag so now you know we we now have like a, a week's worth of like cruise ship stuff that we put and we'll be using in the bathrooms i'm thinking you know aren't we stealing this and now nah, i figure that's all included in the cost of the cruise so we ended up doing it but it is very very good to get back if you ever get a chance to go with foxwell travel to alaska i would encourage you to do that all right the more things change, the more they stay the same. That's a lot of the news, and we're going to kick it off in just a couple minutes. Gee, another day, another armed robbery, another police chase. Where are the parents? That's where we start the program in just a couple minutes. It's good to be back. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. WTMJ is broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair, and thanks to Coakley Brothers and Brothers Interior, our State Fair studio has a brand new look. Come by, see Steve Scafidi, Jeff, Jeff Wagner, that's yours truly, John Recure, and many more at our state-of-the-art studio on site. It's the Wisconsin State Fair on Wisconsin's radio station, News Radio WTMJ. All right, let us get started. Here is the way Fox 6 reports this. Milwaukee police arrested five teenagers after a pursuit and crash that left a 15-year-old hurt when a driver hit him as he tried to run away. Uh, One of the neighbors says, this is not Grand Theft Auto, it's real life. But unfortunately, as an aside, it is Grand Theft Auto when it comes to the streets. Here's the story. Police said the pursuit started shortly before midnight, Tuesday, August 9th, so a couple days ago, on 1st and Locust, when officers spotted a vehicle linked to an armed robbery. So this isn't a situation where the, they chase the car because there's a taillight out. It's because they think the people in the car have been involved in an armed robbery. So they tried to stop it. Well, we've seen this movie before. What happens? Nobody stops for the cops in Milwaukee. They take off. Driver did not stop. Neighbor says it's very dangerous. The car passed um, his house. They was riding around circles yesterday and hanging out of cars. The chase ended when the driver crashed into a curb near 46th and Lisbon. So it starts on 1st and Locust. It ends up on 46th and Lisbon. All right. Here's the dangerous details. Police arrest five people, four boys, ages 17 16, 15, and 14, and one 16-year-old girl. Police say the 15-year-old had to be taken to the hospital after he was hit when he tried to flee from police and car coming another way hit him as he tried to run from the crash scene. A firearm was recovered from the vehicle. Now, the neighbor 
who's talking to the TV station, asks some of the, I think, relevant questions. Where are the parents at? Where are the parents? What's a kid doing out in the middle of the night taking cops on a high-speed chase? The guy says, the cycles repeat. You let them go home the next day because they're so young. Two or three days later, they're going to be out there again. He says something needs to change. This is the neighbor who saw all this. Something needs to change for him to feel safe crossing the street in his own neighborhood. They don't have parents that are going to discipline them. The system has to punish them. Well, we know that the system doesn't punish them. I mean, how many times have we talked about the same sort of story? You get a bunch of punk kids who are out there. In this case, I don't know if the car is stolen or not, but I would guess you would probably, it probably was. But they're suspects in an armed robbery. They, they, they flee from the cops. Nobody is an adult. 17, 16, 15, 14, my goodness sakes. And the 15-year-old tries to run, gets hit by a car. And, again, it's a cycle that's going to repeat itself because the guy is exactly correct. They arrest him. My guess is if this happened, what, around midnight on Tuesday, you know, they're probably all back on the streets right now, and there's a, probably a good chance that either tonight or tomorrow they're going to be out on the streets looking to steal another car and rob somebody else and go off on another high-speed chase. It is a pattern that repeats itself over and over and over and over again, and we are not close to breaking that cycle. So I thought this was an interesting thing that the the guy who's on TV, he says, where are the parents? And if if they don't discipline the kids, should we start looking perhaps at ways to hold the parents accountable? Now, I mean, seriously, if, if you have a 14-year-old kid or a 15-year-old kid, I understand school isn't in session. I get the fact that it's early August. But still, at, at midnight, should you not have some idea of where those kids are? And should you not have some, I don't know, responsibility, for example, to know what it is that those kids are doing? Last time I checked, we had a curfew in the city of Milwaukee. Okay, what is that, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night or whatever? 14- and 15-year-old kids, and I know I, I kind of joke about this. It's Wagner's rule of life number four, that nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 in the morning. Well, nothing good happens on first and locust when you're 14 years old at 11.30 at night. And you can take that one to the bank. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If if authorities can't hold the kids accountable because the juvenile law system, the criminal justice system, when it comes to juveniles, is so completely out of control, is it time that we need to figure out ways to start holding the parents accountable? And by that, I mean stiff fines if the kids are out after curfew, stiff fines if the kids are involved in criminal activity like joyriding and stolen cars, if this was a stolen car, or certainly fleeing from the police. Is it time to start holding the parents responsible? Because at the very least, if you might say, well, it's not fair to expect the parents to know where the 14-year-old kid is, well, nuts to that. Maybe if your 14-year-old kid is at home after curfew, maybe you have a responsibility to call the cops and say, my 14-year-old kid isn't home after curfew. I have no idea where he is, but chances are it's up to no good. 855-616-1620. If if we can't look, my my solution is, as people know, is just to catch these kids, to lock them up, to put them in juvenile detention facilities for three months, six months, nine months, whatever, because what we're doing isn't working. But you know, if even if we're willing to do that, and I'm not sure that we have the intestinal fortitude to do it, isn't it time maybe to say, okay, we need to get the parents involved in this, and you've got a responsibility to watch your out of control punk kids, and if you don't, then you are going to be held responsible as well. Eight five five six. One six one six twenty. We discuss in a moment. 
855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's see, Jeff. As a parent of a young son in prison, I blame the system and the judges. Time after time, I cried asking them to hold him, but until someone dies or someone wealthy and connected is involved, the prison uh, the prison system just doesn't get involved with these young people. 855-616-1620. Well, that, that's the thing. And look, and I understand there might be some extenuating circumstances, but g- give me a break. You know, if you're a parent of a 14-year-old, you should know if that kid is out on the streets running wild at, at 12 at night fleeing from the cops. Don't you have some responsibility to try to hold the kid accountable? Randy in Beloit. Randy, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Well, good afternoon. I uh, listen to the show all the time. This is the first time I've had a chance to weigh in. I got a little bit of a story. Uh, I'm talking about parents holding their kids accountable. My son and a buddy has this probably been 25 years ago, took my car for a joyride without my permission in the middle of the night. Well, I woke up and saw the car missing. I called the cops. Mm-hmm. And they caught him coming home about two hours later. And uh, both him and his and his buddy went down to the police station. And uh, he was on the path uh, that was not good, I think, at the time. And I'm not saying this totally turned him around, but getting pulled over, and I didn't press charges, obviously, because it's my son. But it did put, as they say, the fear of God into him. And um, so I agree, yeah. parents, you, you, can't, you can't not blame, you cannot blame the schools or the police or the courts. you got to know where your kid is. And when you find them doing something they shouldn't be doing, you're the parent. Be responsible. And that's right now, th- th- no, Randy, thanks for the call. I, I appreciate you joining us. And I guess, see, that, that's always been my point. I, I, I don't sit here and say, look, I, I understand kids do stupid stuff. I, I get it. I understand that. And I'm not saying that every time somebody does stu- something stupid, for example, you take dad's car and you go on a joyride, that that means you get you know sent away to juvenile detention for two years. But let's understand, this is not Mayberry anymore. This is not what's going on. You have kids who are out there committing serious crime after serious crime, armed robberies, fleeing from the police, stolen cars, and they are doing it with impunity because the system does nothing to them. They know that. This is not a path that is going to lead to good stuff. It's it's just not. And there, there has to be some way, I think, to hold parents accountable for letting their kids run wild on the street. Look, I, I'm getting a couple of texts from people who are saying, well, what if dad is in jail? Oh, okay. What if mom is all screwed up on drugs? Okay. In that case, then where are social services? If you, if you are in prison or you are so screwed up on drugs that you can't figure out that you got to hold your 14-year-old accountable if he's off, you know, stealing cars and driving at high speeds and leading cops on police chases, then you shouldn't be the parent. Then we should be taking the kids away from you and getting them, I don't know where, but if you can't manage your kids because you are so out of control or so drug-addled or, you know, you're in prison yourself, that's the example I'm getting, then, then take the kids away. Then we need to be aggressive, but we're not doing anybody a favor by allowing these kids to just run the street with impunity. And this guy who was talking on TV is absolutely right. I will bet you dollars to donuts that of these five people that were involved in this high-speed chase, okay, if it was two days ago, by the close of business tomorrow, all of them are going to be out on out of jail, and they will be looking to steal other cars or rob other people over the weekend. Look forward to it. John on the north side. John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. 
Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. Glad you're back, man. We miss your voice. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't understand. You know, they, they, you, you can't discipline your kid. They, they, if you whoop them, they're going to call. Uh, if you spank them or whoop them or whatever, what my mother done to me, we got the whoopings, you know, so we, we got we got bees in school So uh, because we were afraid of that whooping. But now, if you just if you holler at them too loud, they call a nine one one and they come and take you to jail. They're more interested yeah. in putting you in jail than they are put uh, doing something for their kid. Well, well, right, John, and and again, you, you, you're not doing the kids a favor. I, I think we think we're doing the kids a favor by giving them chance after chance after chance. And, and the truth is, all that does is embolden them. Hey, you steal a car, you lead a high cops on a high speed chase, nothing happens to you. When you're out three days later, what are you going to do for fun? I'm going to steal another car and lead the cops on a high speed chase. It, it's it's a game out there in parts of the city, and and there's no winners in it. There's no winners at all. But I want so, to John, thank you. Yeah. Okay, thank yeah. you. No, John, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, no, I, I get it. You know, there's I, you were using the phrase whooping. Well, we don't we don't do that, and I, I guess we, we don't do that anymore. And and all I'm saying is that there needs to be some way of holding people accountable. And if you can't tell, there is legitimate frustration in in my voice. There is frustration because. Law-abiding, honest citizens are becoming victims. And, and the system, what happens is when you don't believe the system works, and I think we can make a strong argument that the system isn't working with all the car thefts and the out-of-control juvenile stuff. So when, when people don't feel the system works, then they start to do things like kind of take the law into their own hands or whatever, or they just become completely and totally disillusioned. That's bad. But from the perspective of the juvenile criminals, again, th- this isn't Opie shooting his, uh, hitting a bird with a slingshot or, or so windows. These are 14 and 15 year olds who are driving stolen cars involved in armed robberies, fleeing from the cops. In the case of the 15 year old, he gets hit as he's trying to flee from the cops. It's a miracle that the kid is, is alive. Wouldn't you rather have the kid detained for six months as a way of hoping to scare him straight as opposed to in the morgue? Isn't that the better, superior choice? And for everybody who's been a victim of one of these punks and the juvenile car thefts and stuff, don't you want to see stuff like that happen? But we, we're not at that point yet. We need to dramatically change the juvenile justice laws. We need to do exactly the opposite of what Tony Evers wants to do when he wants to reduce the prison population by 50%. We need need to detain more people as a way of protecting the rest of us and discouraging this type of crime. And until we have a sea change in attitude, nothing's going to change on the street. Welcome back. We're broadcasting live from the 2022 Wisconsin State Fair. Stop off and see us. Wisconsin's radio station is, as I said, broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. When our WTMJ team isn't hard at work in our mobile studio, they are grabbing a bite to eat at Major Goolsby's Heartland, located right next to the Cream Puff Pavilion, or at Major Goolsby's downtown, dangerously close to the Deer District. WTMJ and Major Goolsby's, come see us at the fair. All right, I need to call myself on this. I when I, when I came back last night, I was checking, catching up on emails and things like that, and then I did again again this morning, and I had a um, had an email from a listener who said, Jeff. You know, glad to have you back. You might not have seen this on television last night, but there has been yet another fire at the Northridge Mall. Now, let me just kind of review the bidding for people who might not necessarily have lived here as long as many of us have. In the 1980s, the Northridge Mall, and I, I grew up on the I grew up on the North Shore, grew up in Glendale. The first there was Southridge. 
And then a few years after Southridge, they built the Northridge Mall. It was a thriving mall. I mean, I remember Northridge's heyday. You had like you had Boston Store, you had Gimbel's, you had a J.C. Penney's, you had a Sears. It was a huge active mall. You had movie theaters with like six theaters there. You had all sorts of restaurants. You had shops. It was vibrant. Then you had a ring outside the mall that was vibrant as well with restaurants and there's a big Toys R Us store. And then across the street, Northridge is located, you know, roughly if you think of like 76th and Brown Deer Road. Then across the street, there was a there were thriving stores and restaurants as well. It was a big deal. It's where I hung out when I was a kid. Well, what happened is Northridge, for a variety of reasons, the neighborhood changed. Some people don't like to hear that, but that's part of what happened. Then you had you had a crime problem. Then you had a guy named Jesse Anderson who claimed that his wife had been murdered outside a TGIFs at, at Northridge, a restaurant. Now, it turned out that he had murdered his wife, but nevertheless, that created uh, started a kind of a perception that Northridge was unsafe. And, and ultimately, what happened is people, particularly suburban women, stopped shopping at Northridge and started going elsewhere. And then stores that catered to the suburban women started closing. And so it, it set into this death cycle, this this death cycle. And it took it took a few years but by you know early you know the early 2000s northridge was was just dilapidated and then it ultimately ended up closing down northridge the huge northridge mall has been essentially vacant for the better part of the last 15 or 20 years a few years back several years ago it was purchased by this chinese operation called black spruce enterprises and they came up with this quote-unquote plan that they were going to take this mall and they were going to turn it into a, a giant um, import-export thing for Asian products and stuff like that. Well, look, I have several friends who are involved in real estate and shopping malls and things like that. And shopping malls, big interior shopping malls, they're just they're failing all over the country. Our, but between Amazon and just everything else, the, the big department shop store department malls they're they're just going out of business. They're they're not working anymore. So this idea that okay somebody's going to spend you know millions of dollars to you know upgrade Northridge Mall to turn it into I don't know a, a Chinese operation where they're going to have you know a trademark. Nobody thought that that was realistic. So what's happened is this company hasn't spent well I don't want to say they haven't spent a dime but they haven't spent very much money in keeping Northridge upgraded. So what's happened is you, you leave anything much less a giant shopping mall you leave it vacant unattended there has been one problem after another. The building is dilapidated. There's leaks. It's you have thieves that break in and steal stuff. You have an electrician what who, who died what a couple years ago because of stuff. The thing is a giant eyesore. And the truth of the matter is, it's never going to be a, a shopping mall again. So what the city does is the city comes in and they they want to tear it down, raise it, R A Z E. And so they they say, look, here here's the deal. The property's worth like 600 grand we estimate it would cost six million dollars to upgrade it there's no way it just doesn't make any economic sense and this business group knows that but they're they're fighting it for whatever reason circuit court judge in milwaukee county says no of course you can raise it this is this is it so they appeal and they get two court of appeal judges to guppy on their argument saying well you're using the wrong standard we shouldn't look at how much it would cost to you know turn it into a vibrant shopping mall like it was we 
we should look at how much would it cost to, I don't know, keep it as a dilapidated, falling down, eyesore menace. That, that's essentially what the opinion says, in my opinion. So the, the city's been stopped for at least a little bit in tearing down the damn thing, which is what should have happened a long time ago. Well, now we are starting to see those chickens come home to roost. Here is the story from last night. Milwaukee firefighters responded to Milwaukee's ill-secured, long-vacant Northridge Mall Wednesday for the fourth fire in less than three weeks. And the Milwaukee fire chief expressed frustration and anger at the scene, noting his firefighters could have easily been killed. Wednesday's fire was upgraded to a second alarm fire due to the size and decrepit condition of the building. Fire officials said fast work by first responders brought the fire under control. When they arrived, smoke was pouring from outside the old food court area. Um, and then the fire chief says, hey, look, this this is the problem. This is where firefighters get killed. It's in these sort of situations where you have these big, unsecured, crummy, run-down buildings, and we don't exactly know what the situation is, and we have to send people in. Similar incident happened back on July 19th. The fire was arson. The damage was estimated at approximately $200,000. Uh, let's see. The fire chief said his firefighters reported it was one of the hottest fires fires they had ever seen. Fourth fire at Northridge Mall um, in over three weeks. Additional fires on July 16th and the 24th. Um, on the 24th, someone gained access to the unsecured building and um, then lit the place on fire. Get this. He says the whole rest of the northwest side is without emergency coverage right now as we're out here putting out fires in a pile of rubble. These men and women have to go into this building repeatedly, putting their lives at extreme risk because this has not been properly secured. The fire chief said the old mall should have been raised, that's torn down, a long time ago. It's unacceptable to building has not been properly secured something has to happen there's nobody maintaining the property there might be an owner on a piece of paper but that's not the same not when my firefighters lives are at risk i'm over i'm done no smoke depression detectors or fire suppression systems in the building something he called wildly unacceptable y- you think um, he said, we are breaking every run total record in the Milwaukee Fire Department has ever had, and now we've got to come out here because the owner won't secure the building at tremendous risk to my firefighters. And then it goes on to talk about this Black Spruce Enterprises who's been fighting to keep this dilapidated building that they own in existence, but they refuse to maintain it. Here's what's going to happen. If this thing is not torn down, you're going to have firefighters that die. You're going to have other people that end up dying. It's going to be the responsibility of the owner. I I cannot imagine a situation anywhere else in the state of Wisconsin where you could have a dilapidated building, no fire extinguishers, no smoke detectors that burns not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, and you don't do anything to it, and and you don't do it. And I don't really fault the city. I, I fault, actually, two judges on the Court of Appeals that came up with this, what I think is a wackadoodle theory to not require, to not allow the building to be burnt, to be torn down. But I also fault, to that extent, the owners 
of this place that have created a major, major safety hazard in a big part of this town. And you know what? Mark the tape. The fire chief is absolutely 100% right. Unless this building is torn down and like torn down right now, somebody is going to die. 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think it is way past time to do anything we need to do to level this building, period. Or maybe maybe the next time the thing burns, maybe you just kind of stand around on the outside and contain it as opposed to trying to go in and, I don't know, put out a fire so somebody can burn it down two nights later. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Once again, we're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. If you can't tell my frustration with this, this is now the fourth fire at, at Northridge Shopping Center in the last three and a half weeks. It should have been torn down years ago. Everybody in the city knows that they're trying to do this. Right now, they've been blocked by a circuit court decision. But the frustration, and I share the fire chief's position, somebody's going to die. They have to send these firefighters in to keep putting out these fires. It is a very dangerous situation. You have this giant eyesore that, that is out there. It is a safety hazard. It is a public nuisance. It is a menace. And by the way, it's doing absolutely nothing for the economic value of the city. Now, we can argue about what you're going to do with Northridge once they tear down tear down the, the structures. And I think maybe light industrial, some people have some other uses for it. But but first, we've got to get past this notion that this black spruce company that claims, oh, we're going to turn this into a giant trademark or something. Give me a break. That's never going to happen. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's go to Aaron in Milwaukee. Aaron, you're on WTMJ. No, Aaron. Aaron? Already. Hi, Aaron. Good afternoon. Yes. Hi. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. Aaron, go ahead. You're on the air. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Hey, uh, first, uh, I just want to tell you thank you for covering this and thank you for putting the proper emphasis on this that that uh, this deserves. Uh, this this is an this is an absolute outrage. Uh, I don't oftentimes uh, get too far out ahead, uh, but but I was I was struck to my core last night that this just continues. And uh, we are we are now playing games with my firefighters' lives. And, and just just to be clear, uh, that, you, that, Aaron, you're, you're you're Aaron Lipsky, Milwaukee Fire Chief. So it's, so I, I appreciate your your passion on this as well. It, uh, I mean, some people might say you're overreacting, but you really aren't, are you? <laughs> no, I uh, I would invite the people who might say that I'm overreacting to come put on some fire gear and let's go see what this looks like all the time. Uh, I, I would argue that people who advance such positions have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. I've been doing this for 25 years. My firefighters are exhausted. My firefighters are at tremendous risk for nothing more than uh, words on a page in a ruling somewhere. And if this is not proof positive of the absolute need for this building to disappear, I mean, I really don't know what else society is at. What what more might be needed? You know, I've, this is now four in, in three-plus weeks. What might be needed before we can get people to agree this is a immediate and urgent and large safety hazard? And I'm asking Chief, me, that question. Go ahead. 
No, I, see, let me let me, and I, I think that's extremely fair. Let me. I have, as you might expect, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of texts that are pouring in, and and if I could summarize a lot of the questions, it's why don't they just let it burn? <laughs> and and I don't mean to be flip about that, but th- that's a question. Do you have to go no. in? Is it possible just to let it burn? So it's it's a question we get an awful lot, and it's not. First off, it's not in our DNA, but second off, strategically and tactically, uh, these fires are not starting themselves, Jeff. And as much as uh, I'm sure there's all kinds of cynical retorts to this as well, but as much as we may find it distasteful that we would expend an ounce of energy for the people who might be lighting it or screwing around in this building, we still must protect them as well. And so we know when we arrive and there's smoke coming out that someone was in there. We have to expend uh, as much energy for for people we may find distasteful or or, or doing criminal things as we would for anybody else. And I know that probably just created a tweet storm. That's fine. Our job is to protect all people. Right. Um, I... The the building was uh, the the estimates were it was worth like six hundred grand before all the the fires. My guess is not having been in there, but you know being f- familiar with that. My guess is after a couple monster fires like you've had over the course of the last couple weeks, to the extent that there, there's anything really salvageable in that building, it's probably all over. Am I correct? Uh, that is that is correct. The, the, the inside of this place is. Uh, not really any real estate agent's dream as far as trying to sell. Right. Chief, the other thing that I guess I find mind-boggling about this whole story is you were making reference to the fact that there, there's no fire suppression device. I'm not surprised, but there, there's no sprinkler systems, there's no fire suppression, there's no smoke detectors, there, there's no nothing. I guess I, I just can't imagine any any building in, in Milwaukee that could get away with that, it, much less as a large, dilapidated structure like Northridge. It, it, is there, are there really no smoke detectors and no fire suppression systems in there? There's there's nothing. We have to bring it all. First off, somebody has to notice the smoke coming out of the building, and it does take some time for that pressure and volume to build up and then for someone to happen to notice it. Uh, the closer we get towards fall and winter when it gets dark earlier, uh, you add some nighttime sky to it, it gets harder to be noticed. So that's the first problem. The fires are going to continue to get more advanced. The second problem is that, no, there is no inborn fire suppression, so we have to lay hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet of fire hose, and we have to do this in a manner that affords us an opportunity to escape if this thing starts falling on us. Uh, so it, it's tremendously labor-intensive, uh, and, you know... It, Every The reason we exist is because things go wrong, right? That's the reason you have a fire department. We arrive in all cases to try to find a solution, and we take pride in that. But now three, four times, and there's as the longer this thing stands, the more it's going to uh, keep going. We have, a, we have a department of neighborhood services that has done fantastic work attempting to pursue this uh, from the, the standpoint of let's get this thing brought somewhere near a code. Uh, it, it's in shambles right now. Chief, I hadn't even thought about the possibility of a collapse, but yeah, I mean, that, that's a multi-story mall. I, I guess, I mean, the, uh, anytime a firefighter goes into a burning building, you're taking a risk, but yeah, who knows what condition that is in. The, the possibility of collapse seems to me to be incredibly high. Well, and I'll, I will tell you this much, that 
we uh, we put a little bit of time and energy in in between uh, the first and second and second and third incidents out there to refamiliarize ourselves and let's just make 100% certain we're squared away. And we've discovered uh, the roof structure has been uh, largely, uh, not largely, but many portions of it have been covered over with a very flimsy material where skylights once existed or some sort of repair was attempted. Uh, and when you throw a rubber roof membrane over that, it's yeah. impossible to a firefighter, uh, invisible to a firefighter. Yeah. And this exact scenario, thank goodness we were able to discover this in advance, but now that prevents us from doing vertical ventilation, which allows us to help the firefighters inside. It's just a big circle. So, Chief, let, let, where do we go from here? I think I, I can pretty much guarantee you that everybody that hears about this story shares your frustration with, with this is this going to just continue to keep happening? I mean, what 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 needs to happen next? Well, uh, what needs to happen next is we need to get ourselves uh, on a docket for an emergency order so that this building can be officially declared, you know, a, a nuisance property, and we can raise the property. Uh, I have been told we do have uh, apparently a a, a a court has cleared a spot on a docket for Monday, uh, yeah. and I, I look at that and I go, "That's that's four days away here. That's a long weekend for us." Um, um, to me, to me, to me, this just strikes this strikes to the heart of why am I not sitting in a courtroom testifying as you and I are talking? That's yeah. that's where I am with this. Well, well Chief, I, I appreciate but I don't it. again. We're talking... that. I don't control that. Right. I can only right. advocate for it. Well, well, no, and, and to that point, I, I think everyone needs to be clear that the city has been trying to, to tear this building down for the last three years and has been stymied by the owners of the building who keep fighting it for reasons that I'm, I'm still not sure I understand. And now, as the building has continued to deteriorate, now it's in a situation where you have firefighters in the city of Milwaukee who are putting their life at risk for people who are going in and burning down this building. And, and Chief, I'm, I'm out here at State Fair, and, and everybody's listening to you, and everybody's nodding their heads that, yeah, this something has to happen. So um, I appreciate you calling in, and I appreciate the discussion. And um, believe me, you, you have the complete 100% support, I think, of everybody in the city that, that something needs to be done before something really bad happens to one of your, your firefighters. Jeff, I can't thank you enough for uh, letting me pop on here and for that that show of support because our firefighters are uh, we're out here doing it every day we just rescued a lady off 38th and locust just just a short while ago uh from a from a, a house fire and uh we're, we're out doing this uh, at a rate that has never before been seen jeff and i just appreciate you allowing me to to spotlight that and highlight that here today so thank you uh, thank you chief that's milwaukee fire chief aaron lipsky let's take a very quick break i'll have some comments and we'll be back with more after the news the wisconsin state fair is here bringing you the sights and sounds live from the fair here's your host jeff wagner Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back. Broadcasting live from the 2022 Wisconsin State Fair. And I will say this, it is a Chamber of Commerce day out there. It could not be nicer. So if you're looking for an excuse to come out and, and play hooky, yeah, you've got my excuse to do it. Um, we do not get many days like this in Wisconsin. And it's one of these days where the temperature is 
really nice and there's a nice breeze and everybody's enjoying themselves and the sun is shining and it's just in general it is a wonderful experience i do want to say a very special thank you to um milwaukee fire chief aaron lipsky for, for coming on and and you could hear I, I think how strongly he feels about this. Now, if you are a regular listener to this program, you know that I have been on my soapbox for the last couple of years about about Northridge, and, and my perspective on this up until now has been the, the economic aspect of it. That that's a that, that's a, a huge piece of property to just allow to deteriorate and deteriorate and deteriorate. And candidly, I think the company that owns it has been scamming the, the general public for years. And, yeah, and that's the word that I'm going to use because every time the city tries to take enforcement action, they, they flash out, they bring out the, these fancy plans saying, oh, we're going to turn this into an Asian trademark. And then the TV stations guppy on this, and they show people, oh, what do you think of these plans? Everybody says, oh, these plans look really good. Well, all this company's done is invest in the plans years ago. Yeah, they look really good because the reality, I mean, I live in the real world, and like I say, you talk to any real estate developer, and they will tell you that the days of the big inside shopping mall are, are over. That That's just not where people are putting money anymore. To the extent that you're going to build shopping stuff that isn't like standalone, you, you do it in, in strip malls. That that You can make that work. But but nobody nobody is, you, you know, you're, you're not going to put big stores into the, these existing, you know, shopping structures. Then that would be the perfect case scenario if Northridge was 25 years ago and wasn't dilapidated. Well, the thing has been ignored for 25 years. It's been burglarized. The copper thing is out. There's no smoke detectors. There's no, I mean, to, to try to to get it close to a semblance of code, you would take millions and millions and millions of dollars that nobody in their right mind is going to invest in, in something that, that's just, it's not like these big interior shopping malls or waves of the future. So you've got the, this company that's holding this, allowing it to deteriorate, and, and my perspective for the last several years has been, you, you've got to, economically, you've got to move on. You've got to get rid of this. It's not right for, and I don't care, I know some people think it should be a spot for a juvenile detention facility, some people think it should be light industrial I, I i don't i don't know i don't care but i just know that what they have there isn't working and it's been a nuisance and the idea that this company has been able to frustrate the, the what should logically happen to a building that they've allowed to deteriorate is just aggravating and the fact that you had two circuit court of appeals judges who guppied on this makes it even more frustrating but now that whole dynamic has changed because now it's just not a public nuisance and an eyesore, but now it is a threat to public safety. And you heard the fire chief talk with that about passion. And I understand the, the obvious question is, why don't you just let it burn? And I, I'm glad he, he answered it. He said, first of all, it's just not in our, our DNA. Our, our mission is when you come out there, you know, you, you try to, we put out fires. That's, that's what we do. But we also, these are set fires, and so our obligation is to go in and make sure the building is unclear. Well, I, so they, they, they've got to do it. Although I understand on one hand you want to say maybe you just kind of set up a ring around this, contain it, and let the darn thing burn and have the whole problem solved. But I, I understand why it is that they, they can't do it. And I'm, I'm glad. I hope there is an emergency hearing. But like he says, even an emergency hearing, who knows what's going to happen over the course of the next couple of days. Th- this has gone from an economic matter to a matter of life and death. And the other frustrating thing about this is the fire chief says, when you've got when you've got a uh, a building like that that's, you know, second to a multiple alarm fire and stuff, you're, you're pulling all your resources. So you know, somebody else that's got a problem somewhere else, that, that, that fire truck isn't going to be able to respond as quickly. This whole thing is completely and totally, absolutely 100% unacceptable. This is a bad company 
that has been allowed to get away with being a bad company. And it's time for, at least when it comes to their, their behavior with regard to Northridge, it, it's time for that to change. This building needs to be torn down. It needs to be torn down right away. And then I guess we can argue about you know, what you do with it. I think that's a fair question, but that's not the issue anymore. This is a matter of life and death, and it needs to be taken down, and it needs to be taken down immediately. All right, let us switch gears. Rebecca Clayfish was on the, the program now, a couple weeks ago, and I asked her the, the question that, that I ask all the candidates, which is, I mean, do you think the election was stolen, the, the 2020 election was stolen? And her answer was no, I don't. Th- I wouldn't use the word stolen, but I, I think there were things that were rigged. And I said, "What do you mean by rigged?" And, and she talked about how, for example, in 2020, the Wisconsin Elections Commission took a, a very, very interesting position in striking the Green Party candidate from from the ballot based on some really, really questionable logic. Uh, the Green Party candidate had pulled in like 30,000 votes in 2016. And in 2020, if the Green Party had been on the ballot and presumably gets his, that candidate gets that 30,000 votes, almost all of which would otherwise have gone to Joe Biden, you know, what did Biden, you know, win Wisconsin by, like 20,000? Well, you, you can see, see, that's what I mean by rigged. I mean, there were things, it's not like, you know, they're having people come out of the graveyard and, and vote, but there were decisions that were made that were designed to kind of grease the skids or make it more likely that Biden would win than Trump would win. This, this is another example of that that I think deserves attention. And I will tell you about it in just a minute, and we will discuss. Stick around. Welcome back. Broadcasting live from the State Fair. So follow me on this. If you ever see the initial CTCL in an election contest, that refers to the Center for Tech and Civic Life. This this is the Zuckbuck group, Zuck, Zuckerbuck's group. This is a, a left, and this is by their own admission, a left-leaning group that was formed in 2012 with donations from a bunch of big lefties and it's designed to impact american elections it got a big boost in 2020 when mark zuckerberg put in millions and millions of dollars and it's been it is not illegal to to give that's been the determination i don't think i think it should be probably but it's not been illegal for like these left-wing groups to pour tons of money into giving them for example to local election officials in order to juice turnout now in wisconsin what happened and i'm not suggesting this was illegal i'm just suggesting i think it should be is a disproportionately large amount of money went into the heavily democratic areas of the state wisconsin geographically is is republican but you know there, there are huge enclaves and enclaves of Democrats in Madison and Milwaukee, and to a lesser extent in places like Racine, which is very, very heavily Democratic, even though Racine County isn't. The money, in my opinion, was spent disproportionately in areas to try to turn out the vote in heavily Democratic areas, and, and it, it worked in many respects. So here's what they're doing in Racine, what they did before. The, the Zuckbucks group, the CTCL, provided Racine almost $1.7 million in, in multiple installments. One of the things they decided to do with the money was to take about 225000 and purchase a, a, mob, a quote-unquote mobile voting precinct. In other words, this van. 
And the idea is what they will do is they will take the van. So instead of you having to request your ballot from City Hall and them sending you your ballot and you returning it or you having to go to go to vote in person, what they do with this van is they drive around the city of Racine, which is largely Democratic. They announce, okay, this is where we're going to be today, and you can come to our van, and you can vote. In other words, we are going to bring City Hall to you. You, you don't have to worry about drop boxes. We're going to you know, drive the van around to all these various locations, and you know, we're going to have this kind of like mobile voting day. Now, first of all, I don't think there's any way in God's green earth that this is legal under the state law. Secondly, it shouldn't be legal because what it does is it gives a disproportionate advantage, in this case, to Democrats, because it's not like Zuckbucks went to every municipality across every county across the the state to do a mobile van. It, it, it went, okay, we're giving Racine $1.7 million. They carve out $200,000 for this mobile van that other communities don't have. So given the fact, and, and if you don't think people knew this was going on, I'm, I'm sorry, again, duck your shoulder when you fall off the turnip truck. The, the idea was we're going to pour this money into these heavily Democratic areas, and then we're going to use them, in this case, for, for a let's make it easier to vote. Well, okay, I get that, but should it be easier? Should you be able to have a, a mobile election van that's essentially kind of like an ice cream truck that drives, I'm overstating it a little, but just a little, that drives to different locations and parks and parking lots and says, hey, come out and vote here. Should you be able to do that in Racine and not be able to do it in Manitowoc, because Manitowoc doesn't have the $225,000 to buy the mobile van, or not be able to do it in, uh, pick, pick you know, some other community across the state. And when Rebecca Clayfish was talking about things being rigged, I think that's what she was referring to, that this idea that we're juicing the ability to, we're making it easier for people predominantly in heavily Democratic areas to vote than we are in other areas by pouring these resources into them. If Racine County has a van that can drive around and uh, essentially be the ice cream truck of, of mobile voting, here, the good humor man is here, come, come out and vote. Every other county in the state should be able to do that. But they can't because they didn't all get $1.7 million in, in suck bucks. So it's a disproportionate advantage given to some of these communities who got more and more of the money and were able to do that. That's one of the reasons, I believe, why this shouldn't be allowed in, in the first place, why it, it should be illegal. I don't think it is under the law, but it, it, it should be illegal. I do think, and the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, Will, has just filed a lawsuit challenging this practice because they're arguing it has nothing to do with the mobile voting, the truck itself, and how it was purchased. They're arguing that the state statute doesn't allow you to essentially drive City Hall up and down the streets like you're selling ice cream sandwiches and pick different spots to, to vote. That you know you, you have to go in to vote, and there's a process for requesting the ballots and things like that. I think that they have some very, very compelling arguments. But the problem is, again, with what happens, that they've now filed the lawsuit, but we're already sitting here in August. Will there be a ruling on this in time for the November elections? I don't know, which means that, again, you're going to have the possibility of 
of this stuff, you know, continuing to go on. But it's it's when we talk about rig, that's what people I think need to understand. And it's why when you have this kind of influence, that this money, this special interest money that pours itself into like again, you know, election offices in a disproportionate faction, it makes it easier for some people in some cities to vote than in other cities. And I think, I mean, maybe I'm just old-fashioned, but I, I think, for example, I think everybody should have the same chance to vote, regardless of whether you live in the city of Milwaukee or the city of Waukesha or Sturgeon Bay or, or, or wherever. And if you're going to have election trucks that drive up and down the street collecting ballots, well, if you can do it in Racine, you should be able to do it everywhere. But because Sturgeon Bay didn't get all the money from Zuckerberg, well, they can't do it there. And again, this 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 has been part of this operation. The Center for Tech and Civic Life makes no mistake of it. They are a left leaning group. And if you think that the money going into efforts to juice turnout in urban areas, if you think it is just a coincidence, sorry, that's just not what's happening. Is it enough to sway elections? I, I don't know. But I think elections in Wisconsin need to be run the same standard for everybody. So if you're going to have mobile mobile vans driving around um, in Racine County, you should be doing it everywhere. But, of course, the other counties can't afford to do it, like I say, because they didn't get $1.7 million in Zucker, Zuck bucks, which is why it shouldn't be happening, period. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. We are broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. I, it's, it's so interesting. The, the one and only David Gruber just walked by. You know, he's out here at the fair. Before that, um, my former law professor, Tom Hammer, who was in the DA's office years and years ago, he and his wife, Patty, walked by. It's, I was out here one year, and we had grade school teachers of mine that came by and said hi. It's one of the reasons I just love broadcasting from Wisconsin State Fair, and I, I love being on our listener trip to Alaska. But I'm glad to get back in time to at least do a couple days from the fair. So if you're coming out, be sure to stop by our completely revamped. WTMJ broadcast facility and say hi. Mike Spaulding, are you you're monitoring? The, is the press conference started yet? It has not started yet, Jeff. It looks like they are setting up all the TV cameras are taking their white balance shots, and we are tightly zoomed in on the podium, so I would think momentarily. Well, will you do me a favor? Since I'm out here at State Fair, kind of working blind, would, would you, let me ask you to stick, stick around for yeah. a couple minutes and let us know when that kicks off, because I am, I am curious to cover it. Let's cover the first few minutes of it, because they, they haven't said whether it's about the Trump search warrant from a few days ago or whether it's, we, we don't know what it's about as of yet, right? Yeah, correct. We don't know really uh, anything. They just said uh, Mayor Garland's going to talk and left the statement at that. I, I would have to assume, right, Jeff, if you're, the DOJ, why would you do a press conference about anything else right now and not mention what happened on Monday? I, I agree with you, Mike, but we're, you know, we, we live in different times. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break. Um, if the press conference starts during the break, we'll cut in. Otherwise, we'll, we'll see where we are when we come back in a couple minutes. Uh, this is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The coaches, the athletes, the volunteers, and, of course, the joy that comes with it all. That's what you get with Special Olympics Wisconsin. Join our very own Vince Vetrano as he leads our next WTMJ Cares effort. On August 22nd, you can bid on items that benefit Special Olympics Wisconsin. Just text the word CARES, C-A-R-E-S, to the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line to get a link to the great items that will be available. WTMJ Cares is sponsored by Gruber Law Offices. One call, that's all. As I just mentioned, Dave Gruber just walked by a couple minutes ago. Ago. 
We were uh, we were classmates at Marquette Law School a number of years ago, and he's one call, that's all, and I'm the guy on the radio, but uh, it goes back. All right, we are awaiting the Merrick, conference, uh, Merrick Garland press conference. Our assumption is he's going to talk about the search that was executed at, at Mar-a-Lago on Monday. Mike Spalding is back in the studio, and as soon as that conference begins, we'll, we'll, we'll dip into it at least and carry the beginning of it. I, it, I will tell you this. I... I I was on a, a cruise ship, you know, in, in Alaska. So the entertainment and news options were kind of limited. We, on the ship, it had MSNBC and Fox News, but nothing, nothing else, at least from the United States. You could BBC and stuff. And it was sort of interesting because when, when the news of the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago broke, I, I, I spent like a half hour watching Fox News, and then I switched over and spent a half hour watching Mar-a-Lago, watching uh, MSNBC. And it, it, was, it was just an incredibly strange experience because you had the same event, but you would have thought, I mean, it was really like Mars and Venus. The, the takes <clears throat> were completely and totally different. I will give you at least my initial take on this, and, and we'll have to see what, what Merrick Garland has to say. And this comes from the perspective of somebody who, keep in mind my background, I, mean, I spent the first 12 years of my legal career as a federal prosecutor, and I have probably drafted 250 search warrant affidavits, if a day. First of all, the criticism of the FBI is misplaced. The FBI... It's. I mean, the FBI agents come to the assistant U.S. attorney, who then is the one that, that drafts it, and then that then that goes to a magistrate judge. So the decision to execute or issue search warrants, it's really done in the U.S. attorney's office. If the U.S. attorney's office feels that there's not a basis for this, they, they say no, we're we're not going to do it. So to, to single out attention for the FBI is kind of misplaced in many respects. I'm not saying that the FBI are, are potted plants when it comes to this, but the agents work at the direct direction of an assistant U.S. attorney or the U.S. attorney. So that, that's just kind of how it works. My initial <clears throat> reaction to this was not that I'm necessarily outraged that there was a search warrant, but here's the deal. In, in what, what, is a white, what is essentially what we would call a white-collar case, a, a case involving records, to execute a search warrant is extremely unusual. You know, typically you do search warrants when it's a drug dealer and you think they've got heroin in in the house or, you know, you think there's guns or there's money or things like that, stuff that you have to get because if the people there know that you're on to them, they will move them or they will destroy them. That's why you have, you know, the, the FBI raids and the SWAT teams going in. It's because, generally speaking, it's because of the nature of the crime. It is, in my opinion, extremely, underline extremely rare to issue search warrants in white-collar cases where what you are talking about is documents. Normally, the way this is handled, especially in cases where the the other side, the, the person that's being investigated, knows that they are subject to an investigation, what typically happens is, in, in my case, the lawyer for the Department of Justice, the assistant U.S. attorney, that would be me, you call up the lawyer for whoever it is that you're investigating and say, I've got a grand jury subpoena, and I'm going to send it over to you. These are the records we, we need, and this has to be produced in front of the grand jury in you know 30 days or, or whatever. And if those records aren't produced in 30 days, then what you do is you go in front of a judge and you ask for a contempt finding or, or something like that. That's the way it's normally handled. As a general rule, in white-collar 
similar cases. You do not do let's send out the FBI and you know, bang on the door and, and do search warrants without notice. I, I'm just saying that is unusual. What makes this even more unusual is that you're doing it with regard to a sitting president. And, and let's understand, that is, a, that is a, a, a former sitting president, former president. That, that is a very, very big deal because especially – you know, given our highly politicized nature, it does raise questions, not whether you've got probable cause to get the documents, probable cause to believe that he's got records that are, that are still there. But the question is the, the method of instead of just saying, okay, this is what we want, we want to get orders, etc., we're, we're going to, figuratively speaking, kick in the doors and we're going to take them. That is a very, very rare step in most white-collar cases, number one. And number two, I mean, it is unprecedented when you're dealing with a former president. And, and they didn't do it, you know, with Hillary Clinton's records or anything like that. Uh, th- there's ways that you have of getting them back. So my big question with the idea of transparency is less about what's the probable cause to get the search warrant, but more why are you using this very, very aggressive tactic? It's like if you will remember back into the investigation that was being conducted into the question was, was there was there illegal cooperation between special interest groups and political campaigns? The whole investigation of Scott Walker back then. And you will remember when you had a couple um, political advisors, I mean, political consultants wake up at six o'clock in the morning in the State Department of Justice under this bogus investigation that was being run by John Chisholm that, you know, they're greeted by armed agents banging on the doors at 6 o'clock in the morning and going in and seizing computers and records like that. It's the, the, this is, these are unprecedented things when it comes to, again, white-collar sort of cases because typically, especially in a situation like that, the, the records are, are readily available, but it was done in Wisconsin a few years ago as a way, I think, clearly to try to intimidate the various potential witnesses. Hey, we're the state. This is what we can do. We're going to come in. We're going to do these raids at 6 o'clock in the morning, and we're going to take all these documents. It's not could you get probable cause for them, although I think there were some questions about you know what happened later on with the representations that were made to get the search warrants, but it was more like it was the technique. It was why do you do this? Those political consultants were not drug dealers. Those records weren't going anywhere. There was no need to, again, raid the houses at 6 o'clock in the morning and put people in handcuffs or make them sit in their pajamas while an armed agent sits with them while you go through and you take their computers and things like that. It's it's the choice of tactics. And so I, I'm hoping that I think from the interest of transparency, the interest of setting aside part of this firestorm that has been created that quite candidly has the potential to make Donald Trump a martyr in the minds of some, that there's an explanation not just for you know, why Why did we go looking for these records? And, and hopefully they found records, because if this search turns up empty, it's going to be a huge political firestorm, and it's going to play into the, the whole notion that this is a witch hunt. I, I take no position on that. I'm just saying that I hope they found records. But the other thing that I think the FBI, the Justice Department, needs to make very, very clear is why they decided that this was the route to go. Why do you have 30 FBI agents show up and bang on the door with a search warrant of a former 
president. Why did they need to do that instead of using the the techniques that you would typically use when you are handling what, again, I'm describing as a white-collar case? I mean, was there any real fear? I mean, I don't know what these records are, what they're looking for, but was there any real fear that Donald Trump was going to destroy these things? I mean, seriously, that, that's why you, you go in a lot of times. I mean, to the extent that there's a need to break in the doors, figuratively speaking, in a white-collar case, you, the only time you would do it is if you thought that there was a legitimate chance that these documents are going to be destroyed. And, and that's why you, you need to preserve them as, as evidence. I mean, is there really a legitimate choice or chance that that was going to happen? Maybe. Uh, under this particular statute, which I'm not sure has ever been used in a criminal fashion, I, I don't necessarily see that you see it. And look, and I appreciate that people are going to see this through their political prisms. If, if you hate Donald Trump, you are saying, hallelujah, th- this is great. This, this means that he's in all sorts of trouble. If you love Donald Trump, you see this as an example of an out-of-control political witch hunt. I, I think it's too soon to make that call, but I do think the Justice Department has explaining to do about their choice of tactic. Again, we were waiting the press conference with Attorney General Merrick Garland. But we don't know for sure what he's going to talk about, but hopefully he will address this. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. We are broadcasting live from the 2022 Wisconsin State Fair. Get that passport ready. WTMJ is sending you on a -a once-in-a-lifetime trip to see the green and gold play in London. You could qualify for this amazing trip to London, including airfare, hotel stay, transportation, and two tickets to the game at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Tune into Wisconsin's Morning News every day at 710 for your chance to win. That is a pretty cool prize. It's the Great Britain Giveaway only on 620 WTMJ. For official contest rules, visit WTMJ.com. One of my texters, now, oh, Jeff, you're, you're just all wrong. These, these, these search warrants happen every day. People are, people are kicking in the doors of corrupt politicians in Chicago all the time, to which my response was, no, it, they, they don't happen every day. But this does not appear to be a corrupt politician case. Yeah, yes, if you, if you have a local alderman that you think is on the take and you think that that alderman has just taken a bribe and there's three thousand dollars in cash sitting in his or her desk drawer yeah i understand that would be a situation where you you want to go in and you you want to you know, see if, if that evidence is there. If you believe that there's a second set of books or something that they're keeping, yeah, that's it. But that is the exception when it comes to white-collar cases. And also, again, if at least the reports are correct, this isn't a public corruption case. This is a do you have, do you still have records that are, in fact, classified? And for people who... who haven't been following this, the National Archives and Records Administration earlier this year retrieved 15 boxes of documents from Mar-a-Lago. The National Archives said it arranged for the transport of the records in January, and the talks with Mr. Trump's representatives began in 2021. So there, there is, the, again, this ongoing dialogue about what records are there and, and what has been turned over. I, I'm just saying this isn't a political corruption case, which is why... I think the Attorney General should sort of forcefully explain not just what the, what the probable cause is to believe that there still might be records there, but also to explain why it was necessary to, again, send 30 FBI, why well, they believed it was necessary to send 30 FBI agents out to execute a search warrant at, you know, one of the residences of the former president. Also, the, the statutes that are involved 
with, well, first of all, the, the one that most plays in is there, there's a law that bars government employees from moving, removing classified information and holding it in an unauthorized location. The, the problem, of course, is that, that that generally applies to, I don't know, like a, a criminal agent or somebody or an IRS agent that takes records home and things like that. Uh, a, a former president can declassify anything he wants, so that makes it more complicated. Also, the charges under these statutes are extremely uncommon. You might remember retired General David Petraeus, who was the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He pled guilty in 2015 to a misdemeanor charge of mishandling classified information. He shared um, black book information that contained his schedule with his biographer. So... I don't know where this is going to go. Let's take one more break. We're still waiting the Merritt Garland press conference. High inflation, recession threats, and a parade of bad news. It's enough to make you lose sleep. It's no secret many Americans are worried about the state of the economy. Join Dave Spano from Annex Wealth Management along with WTMJ's John McCure for Navigating the Markets, a special webinar presentation on Wednesday, August 24th at 11 a.m. It's a one-hour, 30,000-foot view of current market trends with a discussion of what to expect for the rest of the year. Sign up at WTMJ.com. Navigating the Markets from Annex Wealth Management and 620 WTMJ. We are broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair, and and just so the folks outside the fair know, I, I just resisted the urge. You had turned around, and you were taking a picture standing there. I had this desire to go photobomb you, but I decided to just pass on, on that. I had a desire to kind of get myself in the picture. If you can hang on for five more minutes, I'll come out and we'll take a picture where I can be part of that. But there we go. We're getting a thumbs up on that. So it was, they were taking a picture. It was a nice family and all. I'm thinking, huh, I could pop up in the, in the back and, you know, take care of it so but we'll we'll end up doing that um we're still awaiting the merit Par- garland press conference and again I'm, I'm getting all these kind of hostile texts on this i'm i'm simply trying to give you a reasonable and relatively balanced approach something that you don't get on like msnbc and you're not going to get on on the fox news channel about you know what's going on here and, and that is it, to me, it's not so much, again, whether or not there was probable cause, if this really was about record stuff, that, that Donald Trump still has some classified records at, at Mar-a-Lago. The issue to me is, again, why it is that there's a choice of, of doing a, a search warrant, why you do that. And, again, some people are objecting to my, well, you're calling this a white-collar case. Well, yeah, it is It is a white-collar case. That's what this is. So <clears throat> why you, you're choosing to do that when you typically don't do something like that in other kind of cases. If this was a public corruption case, I would see it differently. If this were obviously a criminal case where you're talking about a drug deal or something like that, I would see that differently, but but this isn't. Um, in the next hour of the program, again, while we're still awaiting the Merrick Garland press conference, I, I do want to comment a little bit on the election. This is the first time that I've, I've been back to, to talk about it, and there are very, very clear contrasts. There's no question. In Wisconsin, we are going to be a ground zero elec- uh, an electoral thing. The, the election between Mandela Barnes and Ron Johnson presents voters of the state with, I think, about as stark a contrast as you can. 
Um, Mandela Barnes is is way, 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 did I say way, way to the left of, of Joe Biden. He is the defund the police, abolish ICE, do everything we want with the Green New Deal and all sorts of other stuff, and uh, Ron Johnson isn't. So it's going to be that this real, uh, Wisconsin will have an opportunity to decide you know, where they, they want to go. The same thing is true with Tim Michaels and, and Tony Evers. Tim Michaels, I think, presents about as stark a contrast to Tony Evers as you can possibly imagine. And how Wisconsin voters choose, that'll be the determination. One of the surprises, I admit, from primary night was the fact that the primary election involving Robin Voss was as close as it was. He won over a primary challenger who was endorsed by Donald Trump by about 300 votes. The the thing, and I sent out a tweet from Alaska because I felt so strongly about this, um, you know, I, I've known Robin Voss for, for decades. And, and this idea that, oh, you know, Robin Voss is a traitor. Robin Voss is a Republican in name only. It, it's just, that's just crazy. I, I just, I was struck by how crazy that, that, that is. All because he won't sign off on trying to decertify the 2020 election, which is a complete and total non-starter. But yet they were able to get enough people whipped up that, you know, he almost ended up losing the primary. That would have been a travesty. And I do hope for Republicans we can kind of move on and Republicans can kind of unite around the election, the the things that are going to really move the needle electorally in November, um, as opposed to obsessing over things that can't happen, like the 2020 election. The Wisconsin State Fair is here, bringing you the sights and sounds live from the fair. Here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back. Broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. Our outdoor mic does not work, or they pulled it out. So I, I can't. Normally, I would open it up and I would say, "Hey, give us an applause," because I, I don't want people to think that we're not really broadcasting from the Wisconsin State Fair, and this is something that, that's all made up. But no, we are out here. Was out. Um, was talking to Jacob and Madison, and I got to take a family photo with people. I love being out at the State Fair. I will say, and I mentioned this at the start of the show. This is kind of this weird feeling because. I've just gotten off a cruise ship. You know, we were on the ship for like eight days, and they they tell this story about sea legs where, you know, you get used to the, the rocking of the boat, and I had no problem with that. Starting when we got back last night, I the, the, I have the reverse thing. I still feel like I'm on a boat. I'm kind of like bouncing back and forth, and the, the thing says it'll, it'll be better in a day or so. But I, I really haven't been drinking, but I'm walking around. I feel like the room's moving and stuff like that. It'll, it will, in fact, um, get better. All right, let me offer a couple comments on what Merrick Garland just said, and then I'm going to open up the phone lines. We're going to take some calls on this. Um, I call BS on, on a portion of what he said. And again, I'm trying to be rational about this. As he said correctly, um, normally, as I was saying for the last 20 minutes, normally in what I am calling white collar cases, it's not a case of political corruption where you think that there's a like a thousand dollars hidden in somebody's drawer. It's not a drug dealer or something like that. Normally, in white collar cases, especially where the the subject of the investigation, the potential defendant, the target, whatever word you want to use, knows there's an ongoing investigation. Normally, what happens is that the attorney for, in this case, the government, calls up the attorney for Trump and says, all right, these are the records we need. Here's a grand jury subpoena. You've got X time to produce them. If you don't show up on the date scheduled, then I'm going to go to a judge and I'm going to get a contempt order or something like that. So that's what typically happens, and he acknowledges. So he said less intrusive means are normally used, but in this case, that was not the, the factor. Okay, Here, here's, here's the thing, and it's, it's my big beef right now, which is 
in order to get transparency, instead of like what you sh- what they need to do is they need to make the search warrant affidavit public ASAP. Here is the way it works for people who don't know. And, and I'll, I'll go back to the days when I was a federal prosecutor. I want to search somebody's residence. I, working with the FBI agent or the DEA agent or the customs agent, whoever, we, we draft up. It's the attorneys that draft it up. I would draft up the affidavit based on information that the agent would provide me. The agent and I then make an appointment. We go in front of a federal magistrate. Um, it's normally a federal magistrate. Those are Those are like junior judges. They're not... They're not federal judges that are appointed by presidents and confirmed by the Senate, but they're judges that are hired by the federal judges to do more mundane sort of work. But search warrants are one of the things. So me and the agent make an appointment. We go up. We sit in front of the magistrate. The magistrate reads the affidavit, and then if they have questions, maybe they want more information or whatever, but then ultimately signs off determining whether there's probable cause for search warrant. Fine. Then what happens is the agents go out, they execute the search warrant. They show up at Mar-a-Lago, they go in, and they take their, their records. The search warrant itself, the cover sheet, but not the affidavit supporting the, the search, that's left on, on the scene. So you, you know that, okay, that this was in fact issued. Then what happens is that the agents who have collected the, the whatever it is that they were looking for, whether it's dope or guns or money or records or whatever, they have, I believe, up till 10 days, but it doesn't have to be as many as 10 days, to make what is called a return. What that means is they then have to go back to the magistrate that issued the search warrant, and there, there's a document, and they have to list all the stuff that they took. You know, so that's it. Also, what happens is that when they make the return, when they bring that document back that says all the stuff that they took, it is at that point that the search warrant affidavit and the return, listing everything was taken, that becomes public. Unless, unless the prosecutors file a motion to try to, what they call it, keep that under seal. Now, the, the reason you would keep a document under seal would be, I don't know, like in a drug case, you don't want the bad guys at that point in time to know where you got the information. Maybe you had confidential informants or something like that. So there's an interest before charges are brought in not giving away your case. In a case like this, a white-collar case, there's, it seems to me, absolutely no reason at all to keep that document under seal. So... I think in a situation like this, and now the search was Monday, this is now Thursday, I think it is disappointing that they haven't fast-tracked this. Because as soon as they do the return, that document becomes public. And I think in the interest of transparency, in the interest of allowing people to evaluate the decision to, to search, the, the, to make what I think is an unprecedented decision to search the home of, of a former president looking for, for documents. I, I think the sooner they explain, in this case Merrick Garland, because he's the one that apparently signed off on this, the sooner they explain what their rationale is, the, the better it is going to be. I was actually hoping today that they would come out and say, all right, at, at 1 o'clock this afternoon, you know, Eastern Time, we have, we've done the search warrant return. This is what was taken.
taken from the former president's residence, and the search warrant affidavit is attached. This was the basis for it, and, you know, I'm prepared to now defend why I thought it was necessary to get a search warrant to go into the home of the former president. Th- then you can make that fair analysis. The fact that they, they didn't do that today, I think, is, is disappointing. And I don't know if they're going to, again, when their ultimate return is made, I, I don't know that they're going to make it public at that point in time. But there is nothing legally stopping them from making that public as soon as they do the return. And I guess I'm thinking, if I was the Attorney General, and I had this kind of a volatile case going on, and I had all the different types of people who are saying these different types of things, and I believed that I was in the right, what, what I would have done is, I don't know, I, as soon as I had those 30 FBI agents come back, I would have said, okay, here's the priority, and this is what we're going to do. From the, the moment you come back into the office, we are going to start cataloging. I don't know if I don't care if I need a hundred agents. We're going to start cataloging all the documents that we have taken as a result of this search. We are going to get that return done because you, you don't. I mean, I had many returns that they did the next day. I mean, there, there's nothing that says you have to wait the whole time. You can make it a priority. You can get the return done, and then you you can release it. I would have, if I was the attorney general, I would have made it a priority to get that information ready and to to be back as soon as possible at the office of the magistrate and to allow this document to become public. Now, again, I'm not in a position to say whether it was warranted or unwarranted. It is, I, I think, unprecedented, and maybe there's a good reason for it, maybe not, but the sooner the Department of Justice comes out and gives the basis it had for searching the former president's office, the better home, the better it will be. And until he does that, simply, well, trust me, it was okay. You know, I, I that's that that's that's tough because again, there's a lot of people who see this as being politically motivated. All right, I'm going to open up the phone lines, right, and that, that's the best way I can explain it. A- am I going to, you know, criticize the Department of Justice for this right now? Well, we'll know because there might be something we don't know. At the same time, I think that. There is a lot of explaining to do because this is an unprecedented sort of thing. And I think it's a little disappointing that you would hold this press conference, but not say, okay, this is here, here's the underlying affidavits. Here's the reason why we did it. Because the sooner they disclose that, I think the better it's going to be for everyone. 855 616 1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a moment. So, very glad to have you with us. Yeah, I mean, I think. And this would be what I encourage former President Trump to do as well. Um, it's just there is a search warrant affidavit that is floating around out there that gives the probable cause to support the to support the search. I think President Trump should be encouraging that the re- release of that that affidavit and, and then just let the chips fall where they may. And, and candidly, unless and, and until he's willing to do that, I, I think it, it's. You, you got to take with a grain of salt his complaints that this is a witch hunt or something like that. And I think Merrick Garland as well, especially since he now says he's personally authorized that, he should be doing everything he can to push for the release of that document. And then, and then people can decide what is out there, especially again, and I understand I'm still getting texts from people who don't want to believe this, but these, and even Merrick Garland acknowledged that typically in cases like this, you use what we call less intrusive means. You don't 
do search warrants. And and I think we saw how that can be abused. And I'm not saying this is an abuse case, but we saw how that could be abused here in Wisconsin several years ago when you had the investigation into whether or not there was legal, illegal co- coordination between, say, like the Scott Walker campaign and independent groups. And you saw the heavy-handed tactics that were employed by the state and by Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm in, in going out and, and you know, taking computers and, and taking records and doing you know searches with armed agents at 6 o'clock in the morning at the homes of various political consultants and things of the like. You just you do not do that, in at least in that case, unless you are trying to bully and intimidate. And we all know that that one worked out badly. Not suggesting that's necessarily what happened here, but the sooner the underlying basis for the searches are made clear, I think the more we're going to be able to process that. Okay. I have not had a chance to speak with you about what happened on on Tuesday, and I guess I was following this again from from afar. the The only, I guess, real significant surprise I, I would say on a major level, and I don't know if it's a surprise, but I think most people would have said that the Republican gubernatorial race between Rebecca Clayfish and Tim Michaels was was a toss up. I mean, some of the later polls showed that it was within one or two points, and and as it turns out. Um, Michaels won by a, a slightly larger margin than that, and, and it was a it was a clear victory. I mean, it's not like it was seventy five twenty five. It was a close, hard fought race. And at the end of the day, Tim Michaels emerges. And as I was saying all during the course of the campaign, from a from a policy perspective, try as I might, I, I really couldn't find any significant difference between Rebecca Clayfish and Tim Michaels. In other words, while, while their styles might be a little bit different, when you ask where they are on policy issues, they were pretty much the same candidate. I don't think there was any like major disagreement between the, the two of them, which would have said, oh, this one's going to be pro-life and this one's going to be pro-choice. No, it, it wasn't that case. So Tim Michaels, who is, of course, the Fond du Lac businessman, you know, comes through the primary. He put a lot of his own money into the, the race. And unlike, say, Alex Lazary, who put even more of his money into the race and, and didn't even make it to the election, Tim Michaels and the ads and his, his backstory that, that he presented and his positions on the issue were enough to carry the day. And again, my guess is that the Michaels campaign, they're, they're not going to go dark. This isn't going to be like the Republican Senate primary a few years back, hotly contested. Tommy Thompson ends up winning. He's running against Tammy Baldwin. He ends up winning, but has no money, and he's off the air for the better part of, of a month, and by that time, the race is pretty much over. That's not going to be this case. I mean, I expect that Michaels is going to hit the ground running. I think you're if you're not seeing TV ads now, and I really haven't had a chance to watch TV in the 18 hours I've been home, but if you're not seeing you know TV ads now, you're going to be seeing TV ads soon. You're going to be hearing the radio ads as well. So our number, 855-616-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, Republican or Democrat. My question is this. How do you feel about the fact that the race is now going to be Tim Michaels versus Tony Evers. Is that going to give people enough of a choice? What is this gubernatorial race going to look like? If you're a Democrat, do you feel good about it? If you're a Republican, do you feel good about it? Where do you stand right now as we're what, approximately, well, less than two months away from the election? August, September, September, October, it's almost three months away from the election. 855-616-1620, your reaction to what happened on Tuesday in the governor's race, we discuss in just a moment. We are wrapping up 
It's actually my first day at the Wisconsin State Fair. We have had an incredibly attractive crowd stopping by to watch the uh, show. I'll be out here tomorrow from 12 to 3 as well. So if you're coming out to the State Fair and the weather looks like it's going to be great, please be sure and stop off and say hi. I love to go out. I've been part of some group photos and things like that. That is always a pleasure. It's also kind of interesting to sort of watch watch my past walk by. Like I said earlier, one of my former law professors, um, who was a great assistant district attorney back in the day as well, walked by, said hi. Okay, I, this is my first chance to talk with you about the 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 election. Of course, the one contested race was the race for for governor. I mean, I understand the the big time ticket races. I, I'm at some point in time, I guess we'll talk about some of the down ballot races as well. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. A um, number of people are, are commenting about the Michael's um, Evers race. Um, and and I guess it it is it is the split the again depending on your perspective I think there's a lot of people who are Republicans who are excited about the, the Michaels candidacy and like I say this isn't one where if, if you supported Rebecca Clayfish there's no reason not to support Tim Michaels there, there's just there's just not from a policy perspective as near as I can tell they're pretty much identical um, so to me as I've been saying all during the primary campaign campaign it, it's mostly about to me the, the decision of voting was about kind of an individual style and things like that um, the, the thing that is an advantage to Tim Michaels is the fact that there does not need to be a fundraising pause and I understand that might sound superficial and petty, but it, the, the truth is, you know, it, it's very important to continue to run ads. It's very important to not allow yourself to be defined by the by the opponent. In other words, there, there's already all sorts of Democratic interest groups that are out there running negative ads against Michaels. Well, you can't let those go unanswered. You have to respond, and the Michaels campaign is going to be in a position to do that immediately. Now, the one there, there's a couple wild cards here, and I, I don't. I don't know how it will ultimately play out. I'm getting a number of texts from people saying that for for them, what they believe is going to be the device, the decisive issue in this race is going to be the, the question of abortion, because both Tim Michaels and Rebecca Clayfish were were very very pro life, and Tony Evers is pretty much the the opposite. Tony Evers is pretty much you know abortion on demand anytime anywhere, and so with. At some point in time, as I have argued, Wisconsin, I believe, is going to have to grapple with this issue. And I apologize for, in my opinion, making too much sense on this situation, but this is just the reality. Abortion is legal in Michigan. It's legal in Illinois. It's legal in Iowa. It's legal in Minnesota. So by by having an 1849 law that criminalizes it, that makes abortion illegal in Wisconsin, we, we really aren't stopping people from getting abortions. It's not like there's a national law. All we are doing is making it more difficult for people who want to get abortions to get abortions, um, namely you know, people of, of lower economic means. But it's not to say that they can't travel somewhere to get it, which is why I firmly believe that we, we, we can't allow ourselves to become an island, and there needs to be some common sense of approach to this. And I think the legislature is going to have to deal with that at, at some point in time. Now, I understand that you know, Tony Evers is pretty much, I, I don't want to support anything that puts any restrictions on, on abortion. And as a matter of fact, the, the woman who is running, who's now as lieutenant governor, she specifically refused to say that she would support uh, a restriction that, that limited abortion to the first 20 weeks. Can you imagine? I mean, uh, elective abortions after 20 weeks, that's just flat-out barbaric. The flip side is, I think, from the Republican candidates, you've got to recognize that I, I think most people, 
in the state. I understand there's people who feel strongly about this issue on both sides, some believing there should be no restrictions at all. You know, eight months pregnant, you want to have an elective abortion, you should be able to do that, and others who don't believe that there should be any abortions at all. But I think most people are sort of in the middle on this. There is a support of abortion rights, but recognizing that there needs to be limits because at some point in time, the right of the baby begins to outweigh the right of the mom. Now, I don't know where that limit is. In Mississippi, it's 14 weeks. In Texas, it's 15 weeks. But I think ultimately that's where the legislature needs to to get. How they get there, I I don't know. But that abortion is clearly a decisive issue. Mark in Central Florida. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Uh, Well, thanks for taking my call, Jeff. I'm uh, kind of thinking that you're... I'm kind of thinking that you're looking um, about the gubernatorial race in general now that Tim Michaels is the Republican nominee, I, and I've listened to you just talking a lot about abortion. Abortion is, is one issue um, that may fire up both sides to a certain extent, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of other issues out there, um, and primary to that issue is the ability of people to hold a job, pay their bills, Mm-hmm. Um, feel safe in their own community, um, not have to deal with people they've never seen before flooding in um, to the tune of two and a half or three million do- three million illegals that they're talking about since uh, President Biden has taken office. These are all the issues besides abortion. Um, yep. I don't see how abortion is really going to rile up. It'll bring certain more people on both sides to the table. And yes, mm-hmm. I agree with you at a certain point. That uh, conglomeration of cells becomes a human being. From what I understand, after four to six weeks, um, the so-called fetus starts to have brain activity and heart activity. Um, well, to well, me, well, thank, yeah, I, I appreciate it. Thanks. I, I'm sorry. I, it's my own fault because I was I got a number of texts saying that, you know, abortion is going to be their driving vote. I agree with you that I think there there's people who feel very, very strongly on both sides of the issue, and I think they tend to even themselves out, uh, and that's ultimately going to help play out. I also agree with you that if I am if I am Tim Michaels, I'm. I'm moving away. I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about the 2020 election anymore. I'm talking about exactly those things that you were talking about. That I think people care about. I mean, what are the voting issues right now? Well, depending on where you are in the state, crime is a huge factor that people are concerned about. Um, the whole public safety issue. I'm talking about the level of taxation. I'm talking about inflation. Now, I understand gas prices are coming down a little, but I'm not going to celebrate at three dollar and sixty cent gasoline. I'm sorry. Talk, talk to me. When it's back to 250 and then maybe we can have that discussion but you know it goes back to me to the whole idea of remember bill clinton when he was running in 1994 where they said it's the economy stupid that's it don't just don't get distracted talking about other stuff that is going to be the challenge i think for the michaels campaign to focus in a laser-like fashion on 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 those various issues public safety um the level of taxation job security what can we do to attract young people what can we do to keep our retirees here so you don't have this huge drain where everybody turns 65 and they take their pensions and they move to tennessee or florida or or some low-tax state what can we do to keep our senior citizens here full-time those are the challenges and those are the things that i think 
what I want to say, move the needle and, and motivate people to go out and, and vote. And so I, I hope we don't get distracted on, on again, these, these sort of peripheral things that are out there. If the Michaels campaign is able to run a focused campaign highlighting a couple of the main issues, I, I think they have a very good chance to succeed. If they end up getting distracted, um, it, it's going to be a different thing. But I'm going to tell you something. I, I, I've not been more excited between that and the Barnes-Johnson race. As a political commentator, I have not been more excited to have the opportunity to comment on races in a long, long time. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Fasten your seatbelts, and we'll be here to discuss it. 